0: Welcome to the latest episode of the Public Health Insight Podcast. My name is LaShawn, your host for this episode, alongside my sometimes favorite person, Gordon Thane. In this episode, we'll be discussing three important topics that affect our health on a global scale. Our first topic is a pressing issue that requires immediate attention, the urgency of climate change. UN climate scientists are running out of ways to warn us, and we must take Action now to address the consequences of global warming on our
1: planet's health. Our second topic is the income gap and its effects on physical activity. We'll explore how socioeconomic status affects our ability to stay active and healthy. Finally, we'll talk about the relationship
0: between droughts and disease and highlight four key ways droughts can lead to the spread of diseases. Let's go. The Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, IPCC, has released its latest report, warning that the world is on track to exceed the 1.5-degree warming limit set in the Paris Agreement. The report highlights that human activities, such as burning fossil fuels, are primarily responsible for the current climate change crisis, which is causing extreme weather events, such as rising sea levels and biodiversity loss. From a public health perspective, the consequences of climate change are dire. The report warns that the warming climate will lead to increased frequencies and intensities of heat waves, wildfires, hurricanes, and will result in more deaths and injuries. Additionally, rising sea levels will displace millions of people, leading to food and water insecurity, while the loss of biodiversity will threaten global food systems.
1: Gordon, sounds like the world's going to end. <laughs> you know what the interesting thing is? When I saw this article, I saw the title. It was an interesting title, right? Running Out of Ways to Warn Us About mm. Climate Change. And then reading the article, one of the first things I thought about was, if you remember, we did an episode on it a few, maybe a year ago about that movie, Don't Look Up. Mm. Uh, and it was a, sort of exactly the same thing where... Uh, Scientists were talking about the comet that was going to hit Earth. No one really cared about it because they didn't see it as a potentially immediate threat. And I Mm -hmm. saw that as a parallel to this article about there's so many ways you can spin the urgency of climate change and the willingness on governments to do something about it and people to change their behavior. That's a whole, whole different thing.
0: Yeah, it's tough. I like the don't look up reference because that's the vibes I was getting from it too. Mm. But what's interesting is, have you heard about this latest report, the IPCC report? Because personally I haven't and it seems like it has really important stuff, but why isn't this information getting to the people it needs to get to?
1: Yeah, and that's an interesting point, LaShawn, because even in the article itself, it talks about, it sounds like this report it's sort of the sixth edition, mm-hmm. I, I believe, of this sp- specific report. And they even changed the way that they framed things in this report, yeah. based on my understanding, with the goal of informing policymakers and decision makers, because the way that they were communicating about it before didn't seem to have the same effect with a lot of technical knowledge. Mm. So even in the title of the article about running out of ways to warn us, it seems like even the scientists are trying to do things a little bit differently to showcase the urgency of climate change, specifically in this context around global warming and our goal to avoid getting 1.5 degrees Celsius warmer in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm.
0: So one of the main things that came out of this article is, first of all, the realization, I'm sure a lot of people have known this, but climate change is our fault. Humans have worsened this mm. significantly, okay? And the burning of fossil fuels, right? And so mm-hmm. when we're talking about the burning of fossil fuels, it's very interesting because different industries use fossil fuels for energy production industry, etc. But at the same time, a lot of low- and middle-income countries are using this as the majority for energy uses, Right? However, as we in higher-income countries in Canada, the U.S., start talking about ways to reduce our fossil fuel emissions, at the same time, we're not helping lower-middle-income countries make that same transition. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: What kind of incentives do we need to showcase that this is an important thing, that we should be working as a global collective? Because historically... There's not a lot of cooperation amongst different countries to come together to evoke big change. The last thing I could think of is the Montreal Protocol, which was used to protect the ozone layer by phasing out these substances that were responsible for ozone depletion.
1: Yeah, if I had an answer to that question, I would probably get a Nobel Prize. But what I will say is it's interesting that... In more affluent countries, there's a bit more of a shift, even though it's a little bit slower to move to cleaner ways to produce energy, and low-income countries are further behind on the energy development side. So when you speak of incentives, what we want to do from our position is to essentially skip Help them skip that mm-hmm. phase of burning fossil fuels and go straight to renewable energy. And that can, you know, curb that situation that we're trying to avoid with the 1.5 degrees Celsius warming. And one of the ways to do that is through investments. But what makes it challenging, though, is the article does point out that there's up to about $4 trillion worth of of fossil fuels or non-renewable energy that are that is still left on tap, mm-hmm. so it's very hard especially in the energy industry where a lot of it is privatized to incentivize them to leave that alone and mm-hmm. then make investments into clean energy where i feel like they're going to be incentivized unfortunately to move to clean energy once non-renewable energy is depleted completely yeah rights because it's a profit-driven industry so it's hard to make that sell when there's maybe not so much government influence although some of the interventions does include taxation and and things like that to incentivize a shift Mm. but it's quite a difficult space for policymakers and public health professionals to be in and scientists
0: yeah the interaction between industry politics public health Mm -hmm. energy production and just Human behavior is very complex. And one of the things I just think about when you know I conceptualize climate changes, it's very hard to understand how your actions today are going to shape the future state of the earth, right? Mm-hmm. So I find it's hard for politicians, people in power, and just the general public to conceptualize the different behaviors that they're doing that is contributing to climate change, how that's going to eventually evolve into creating a world that's mm-hmm. less than ideal and optimal for human humans to live in, in a healthy way.
1: And that's why we referenced the movie at the beginning. The movie was about a comet that was approaching Earth. We did an episode about what if climate change was a comet approaching Earth, yeah. and That shift in mindset where it's something there's a clock ticking and something will happen that doesn't seem to be the prevailing belief on this. And therefore, we kind of kick the can down the road until the next generation comes and then the next generation comes. And then the ones that will have to deal with this are the ones that do have the stopwatch that says in five years the world is going to end and we have to do something about it and we might not be on earth when that happens mm. so it's easy for us and people who are older than us to to neglect it knowing that they won't directly feel the consequences of it but what makes it tricky though Lashawn is it's multi-layered it's not just the energy industry because the article talks about carbon dioxide mm-hmm. you know trapping heat in the atmosphere global warming but there's also m- methane as yeah. well mm-hmm. and the agricultural industry plays a huge role in that, and mm-hmm. that's not even necessarily related to energy yeah that's what we get for eating meat production, land use, yeah, and that's a bigger danger to climate change, so it's hard to shift from fossil fuels to cleaner energy it's going to be even harder to shift from the way we produce food, yeah and then to it you know I'm not very optimistic about this to be honest yeah i mean it's tough and like i said
0: earlier montreal protocol was one of those opportunities where everyone came together to make change but like don't look up suggested if it seems like we're not going to really budge as a global collective until everyone could actually feel those drastic effects and remember with climate change people are affected by it differently so One part of the country can be affected a certain way, while another part of the country can be affected another way. Some might be a bit positive, and then some can be drastically negative, right? So until everyone experiences that Mm -hmm. negative level on their day-to-day lives because of that, it's going to be very difficult. And I'm feeling pessimistic about this as well.
1: Right. Right. And it said it said in the article, too, if I'm not mistaken, is essentially global warming is right now a phenomenon of poverty in that most it affects lower income regions more. And therefore, those that cause most of the climate change are unaffected. And then there's less impetus on them to do anything about it because the effects are less immediate when. There's communities right now that are experiencing the effects of climate change, mm-hmm. being displaced from where they live, and food production going down, and spread of diseases and a lot of different things. So it's it's a really tough one. It's probably the most challenging um, thing of our time besides global pandemics and, and things of that nature.
0: Yeah, and to your point, the sad part of all this is you mentioned that those most marginalized communities are the most disproportionately Mm. affected by climate change. And on top of that, in terms of research, there's the least amount of research being done in those disproportionately Mm. affected areas. Right. So not only are we screwing people over in different parts of the world, we're also not understanding those impacts of what we're doing.
1: A physical activity divide has emerged across the United States where less affluent children and adolescents are participating far less in sports and fitness activities than their more affluent peers. Data from multiple sources show a significant gap in sports participation by income level. The privatization of youth sports has become a multi-billion dollar enterprise offering new opportunities to those who can afford hundreds to thousands of dollars each season for club team fees, uniforms, equipment, travel to tournaments, and private coaching. Public schools have also curtailed physical activity education classes and organized sports. As a result, low-income kids have nowhere to get their physical activity, and schools are not always filling the gap. Consequently such children and adolescents miss out on the benefits of physical activity, and those effects may carry through into their later years of life. Lashawn, what is your reaction to this physical activity divide, especially in the context of school physical activity programs?
0: It's, it's very sad, right? Oftentimes you hear about the technological divide where there is this divide in terms of people's access to technology and internet, But here we're talking about because of this income gap, there is also this division of physical activity. Now, the sad part about all this is when you think about schools, there's always that physical education component to those curriculums. And there's always Mm -hmm. these opportunities for students to engage in soccer, basketball, tennis. Well, our, our school didn't have tennis, but like volleyball. And there's a bunch of different outdoor sports that you could participate in. To have this all cut is very, very problematic because when we're thinking about low income settings and kids and youth that come from low resource families, Mm -hmm. where else are they going to get this physical activity? Right? And when, as you were mentioning, there are so many different facets of what it takes to enroll in some sort of private sports the cost of enrollment, mm-hmm. the uniforms, travel times, the availability of the parents to be able to take them and the youth to these practices and games. So it becomes very problematic, and I, it, it's very much based in the social determinants of health because you're mm-hmm. seeing that these different factors are preventing and giving youth from low-income families less of a shot and less of a chance and less of an opportunity
1: to play organized sports. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important for this discussion that we don't see physical activity in of itself as the end goal. We have to talk about the benefits of physical activity. Mm -hmm. So prevention of diseases later on in life, mental acuity, so better performance in school as well. So I'd really want to keep that at the forefront as well. And another thing that... Maybe wasn't discussed as much in this specific article, but I think warrants further discussion is on one side of it, you have a school where programs are cut and you might have a mix of different uh, families that attend the school, different income levels. The ones that maybe are more from an affluent family can afford to enroll their children in private programs. If you go to another neighborhood that has better, you know, has a more affluent community in general, there might exist in those communities school programs that have these programs because it's a more funded neighborhood Mm -hmm. and these schools have more resources to subsidize those programs for students and children that might not even need it to be subsidized for So then that further widens. So we're looking at disparities within a school itself Mm -hmm. or a neighborhood, and then we're looking at disparities across neighborhoods, too, where there's more income in one neighborhood than another. And then they don't even have to take out money out of their pocket to put their school kids in private programs because the public system is very well resourced. So that creates an additional challenge when we're talking about health disparities, health inequities. And that's really something that's quite disturbing and will have long-term effects.
0: Yeah, and speaking of that long-term effect, we're really talking about a very critical period in someone's life, in school, as a youth. Where do you think youth build certain behaviors, such as physical activity, their love for it, their passions? These are behaviors and hobbies that they develop at an early age that they take with them throughout their life course. Right, And if they don't have the opportunity to participate in these activities early on, they're less likely to do so later on in life. And as Gordon mentioned, those benefits of per- to having this physical activity component are so important.
1: But there's parks in the community, children can go out and play, what's the big deal? Well, data from multiple sources, especially from the CDC, does show that the income gap does have a strong association with the physical activity gap as well in particular 70 percent of children from families with incomes above one hundred and five thousand in the u.s and you know that translates to being four times above the poverty line those children participated in sports in 2020 when you compare it to about 31 percent for families that are below the poverty line and that's participation in these physical activity programs so We're really concerned here about the disparities in access and what that might translate to from a health and social consequence down the road. If you think of it to LaShawn where you said this is a critical piece, critical time for development, you're building habits, physical health literacy, and that's something that you'd be missing out on later in life in adulthood if you didn't have those opportunities as a child. The horn of Africa has been
0: hit by a multi-year drought, with Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, and Uganda expected to continue receiving below normal rainfall in 2023. This has resulted in 36.4 million people being affected, with 21.7 million in need for food assistance. Climate change projections indicate that prolonged dry spells particularly in semi-arid and arid regions, may have serious impacts, particularly if people are not prepared. Droughts can lead to food and water scarcity, economic losses, mental health issues, and can even increase the risk of infectious diseases. Gordon, can you help me connect these dots between droughts and all these negative
1: implications for people? hmm Yeah. I must admit, growing up, I'm from Jamaica and we did often have droughts and I wasn't a fan of the rain because you couldn't get to go outside and play. So I was like, oh, drought, that means there's no rain. That's cool. And then you get older and then you realize the importance of the weather that we have, the rain and the snow and precipitation and all these things that we take for granted. Because in the moment, you don't realize how many people those phenomenons affect. So in this specific case, going back to climate change, climate change influences the frequency and severity of droughts. But why do we care about droughts? Especially in low-income countries where they rely on using the land, they rely on water from the rain to grow their crops and food to be able to feed themselves and their community this creates a lot of challenge from a food security and a famine perspective but where do the disease part of this come in we know that when the climate changes you have more drought the behavior of the different animals on our planet can change too and a lot of these animals live in areas specific to what they can inhabit as part of how they are physiologically designed and if places evolve in the way that the history of their climate changes over time you can have different animals insects and other vector carrying vector borne diseases which come from animals going into areas that they're not typically associated with and that can introduce new diseases to new populations where there's not any pre-existing immunity and then that brings a whole whole host of challenges with it too.
0: Exactly. But let's talk about ways that droughts can cause the increase of diseases. How does a drought connect to foodborne diseases? When we're talking about foodborne diseases, there are a lot of traditional methods for reducing the contamination of foods that individuals eat across the world. As food that are used to decontaminate are reduced because of supply shortages, it becomes harder to disinfect and decontaminate food. So even sources like cooking fuel, wood may be in short supply. So people might not be able to reheat certain foods. So they might eat it raw, which is going to increase the chances of contamination. But what about waterborne diseases? How how would that get increased?
1: Yeah, waterborne diseases may be a little bit more intuitive in that a drought leads to less availability of water mm. and we all need water to survive. So what that means is we take a little bit more risks in the water that we might use and the purposes that we use the water for. If you So you, if you can think of a family that has a limited supply of water, They might reuse water that they're not supposed to be using. And as we know that there's viral pathogens and bacterial pathogens that live Mm -hmm. in water, and then those can be transmitted unknowingly to the people that are in the position of using water because there's low availability of water, and that can cause disease outbreaks in a community. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, when we think of a lot of times... A good example of waterborne diseases is cholera because it's such an uh, historical and ancient disease, but it's a real issue for many communities today still because of water scarcity. Mm-hmm.
0: And you also mentioned that the increase in temperatures and these droughts can cause vector-borne diseases. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a it's a practice in drought-prone areas to use portable waters. And the stockpiling of these different water barrels and crates for households, by the government, by local NGOs, if these are open and there's more opportunity for this with the increase of stockpiling, if they have open water vessels in areas, this is ideal breeding ground for vectors. And so the vectors will inevitably be closer to humans so that they could contract these diseases.
1: That was a perfect segue to the whole system of zoonotic diseases because you have multiple different animals also who need water to either live, consume, and whatever the case might be, brings animals together in closer proximity to target the water sources that are available and the mixing of different animals that are not you know, it doesn't traditionally happen under normal circumstances, starts to occur a little bit more frequently. And then you can start to get the spread of diseases from different animals who are traditionally the host to animals that have never been introduced to the disease before. So that's another concern. So today we talked about how U.S. climate scientists
0: are running out of ways to warn us. And between myself and Gordon, we expressed our pessimistic view, but we'd love to see more work being done in this area and more ways to engage the global community. We then talked about the income gap and how it's causing this physical activity divide and how youth from low-income families are bearing the brunt of this by not being able to play sports. And finally droughts bring disease. We talked about four ways having droughts in the Horn of Africa can increase infectious diseases.
1: Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to the Public Health Insight Podcast, your go-to space for informative conversations inspiring community action. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to subscribe and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. See you in the next one.